Welcome to Lymphedema Podcast. I'm Betty Westbrook, a certified lymphedema therapist and the voice behind Lymphedema Podcast. The purpose of this podcast is to provide answers and explanations for people affected by the lymphatic disease, lymphedema. This podcast is for patients, family members, medical professionals, and anyone interested in lymphedema. Each month, I will discuss a new topic related to this disease to help you learn more and navigate better your journey ahead. Between shows, you can catch me on IGTV or Instagram TV, as well as monthly live Q&A sessions. I'm so passionate about teaching others about lymphedema that I created this podcast just for you. Thanks for joining me. I hope you're ready to learn something new today. Disclaimer, as a certified lymphedema therapist, all information provided is based on my professional experiences and education. I recommend that anyone who feels they have lymphedema or have been medically diagnosed with lymphedema seek in-person medical treatment from a certified lymphedema therapist. Hello, and welcome back for episode 60 of Lymphedema Podcast. Today, I want to talk with you like we're just some friends bouncing ideas off of each other. Do you do this with your coworker, spouse, or friends outside of work? I do. In fact, working from home, this is one thing I really miss about being in the clinic. Problem solving and collaborating. So here I am, talking to myself in the office, imagining you and I are drinking coffee and eating cookies. Homemade snickerdoodle, to be exact. In the break room, while discussing pediatric lymphedema. I'm gonna be casual, use casual language, because again, we're just some friends thinking out loud over some caffeine and sugar. There have been more occasions than I can count when CLTs have told me, I don't treat kids, when I ask if they have seen any kiddos in their practice. In some ways, I get it. The outpatient clinic I worked with doesn't see kids under the age 11. I don't know if that is an insurance thing, a hospital regulation, or just the way things have always been done. There is a PT clinic in town for our kids, so that's where most of our referrals go. So for those of you who work in a setting like I did, where your clinic doesn't see kids under a certain age, I get why you wouldn't have reached out. I get why you would not have the opportunity to treat kids with lymphedema. And on the other hand, Parents have reached out to me asking for help finding a CLT because the last five places they called in their region, granted some of those being up to three hours away, they've turned them away saying they don't treat pediatric lymphedema. And that is what I don't understand. In our certification to become a CLT, we learn a whole lot in a short amount of time. Pediatrics is included as well as genital lymphedema, head and neck lymphedema, and other things that are not generally seen every day. I remember being overwhelmed the first scrotal lymphedema patient that I saw. I kept thinking about how uncomfortable it was going to be for him and me and his wife. I wasn't worried about treating a scrotum, but the lack of experience in treating that body part It was nerve-wracking for sure. In the end, he and his wife learned a lot. I made them some chip foam and taught her how to bandage the scrotum and penis in a way that would give him relief during the day. But why am I talking about scrotum and penis swelling during this episode? 
just to make my point that because it isn't something I would regularly see, I didn't say to them, sorry, I can't help you because I don't treat genital lymphedema. I put on my big girl pants, rolled up my sleeves, and read the few pages in the textbook about genital swelling before going in for the appointment. The same applies to getting outside of your comfort zone to treat kiddos. And surprise, you may even see kiddos with genital swelling. We are certified lymphedema therapists, not certified breast cancer related unilateral upper extremity without chemo or radiation complications therapist. I don't mean that as an insult to anyone who specializes in breast cancer related lymphedema. Pori Oncology in Denver is doing some great things or any other specialty for that matter. There is a need for all of us. I do wish more CLTs would create and allow opportunities to help parents who are seeking a lymphedema therapist for their child. Amy Rivera presented at the NLN conference in Boston in 2019, and I will never forget her words as she recounted her experience as a kid, a teenager, and later an adult desperately looking for help just to find the name of the condition she had. Just to get the diagnosis of lymphedema took her years. The parents who know how to reach out for help, just to be told no, it leaves their heads spinning. How will they ever learn about MLD, compression, and skincare if no one wants to see them? To talk in more detail about the evaluation process, I interviewed Amber, a CLT at Texas Children's Hospital. Amber is a PT at the medical center where she sees primarily pediatric lymphedema patients. After becoming certified with the Academy of Lymphatic Studies, she began treating lymphedema pediatrics. Let's see what her daily experience is working with pediatric lymphedema cases. Hey Amber, welcome to the podcast. Hi, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for accepting my invitation to come on and talk about modifications for pediatric lymphedema. Um, Like I have mentioned already today, you have experience primarily with lymphedema in pediatrics, correct? That is correct, and thank you for having me. I'm so honored. Oh, you're welcome. I know that my experience has been primarily with adults. Um, I openly and freely claim or admit that. Uh, I do a lot of work with Ryland's Feet Foundation, um, but my experience has primarily been with adults. So this is going to be helpful for me as well. And what I want to start off with, and then I just kind of want to remind everyone, this is just kind of like me and Amber are having a conversation as if, you know, we're just some friends sitting in the workplace break room, and we're talking about how to make some modifications and some changes, just kind of brainstorming with each other. So, Amber, what would you recommend day one, never seen a pediatric case before, what are some basic modifications to that regular evaluation of PT? And I know others are certified, um, OTE, massage therapy, other disciplines. Um, but you and I are both in the PT discipline. What are some basic modifications you would say to start with to help set them up on the right track for treating these kiddos? 
Sure. So one of the main things that I like to pay attention to when I get a referral is, um, you know, primarily kids are going to have primary lymphedema, but we actually get a handful of kids that have secondary because they are post some type of tumor uh, removal and they've had radiation or maybe even some lymph nodes removed. And so I do like to have that information to start with um, because it's definitely going to adjust um, your MLB, but also just kind of the expectations. Um, so that's very important for me to know. Um, secondly would be uh, their age. And, you know, there's, there's a big difference between performing what we call CDT on an infant really all the way up until two years old versus a toddler or a teenager. Um, and so that's really important because that's going to affect if we are even going to try the bandaging or if it's something we are going to hold off on. So I would say those are the main things that I want to make sure I have all of that information first. So you did just mention a little bit about if it's secondary, but if the children are there for a primary lymphedema diagnosis, what are some special considerations there? So then I like to know whether or not we are looking at a kiddo that has an actual lymphatic malformation or general, generalized lymphatic anomalies versus maybe a vascular malformation of sorts or um, kiddos with KTS or cloves where maybe there's just more fat buildup or overgrowth. Um, but with all of these diagnoses, lymphedema um, is often associated with it and it's just hard to determine what it actually is. And so our doctors here really like for the kids to go through PT and get the intensive treatment um, to at least get that conservative approach before they maybe consider something more invasive. Do children that have those vascular anomalies, do they often come to you already with imaging of their lymphatics? Yes. Yeah. Yes, so I am very lucky being that I work in a large hospital system because I would say 99% of my referrals come from our um, vascular anomalies clinic, and that clinic primarily consists of the hematologist, plastics, um, interventional radiology, and so typically we get these kids coming into the clinic, and then we have PT in that clinic as well, which will assess for um, both the lymphedema side of things and then your general gross motor fine motor um, impairments. And then it's really nice because when they go through clinic, they are either before or right after referred for some type of imaging. Um, and primarily at Texas Children's, they are doing the lymphocentigraphy and MRI. That was, that was going to be my next question is what's the most common imaging that you you are, they are referred to or you, you get from referrals? Yes, and so the kids typically will get a lymphocentigraphy or MRI, and I believe the injection um, is imaged, so at the time of injection, 45 minutes later, and then two hours later, so that they can be able to see where the lymph flow is either moving or not moving. Um, which is nice that they, they don't just do the initial injection. Okay. So if someone, you know, is getting a kiddo and they haven't had imaging, would you say, I mean, on like a percentage basis, um, 
how helpful is that imaging in guiding your treatment plan or does it shift your plan of care like by 50% or is it like no big deal, it's not that much of a difference or is it like 100% this is a positive thing that helps to shape your treatment and your plan of care? Um, I would say it depends, <laughs> the typical answer. So it really depends on their diagnosis. So I would say yes in that if they haven't had any imaging at all and it turns out that they have some type of like abdominal region malformation, so if it's their thoracic duct or somewhere in the GI, then that will change my treatment approach somewhat in that, you know, maybe I will spend more time on the trunk, but also just being able to educate the family on, you know, where are they going to have lymphedema and, you know, we need to focus more on breathing and exercises um, and it's hard to wrap, you know, you can't really wrap the trunk. And so depending on where their distal um, lymphedema is, you know, that can be a limitation. But otherwise, um, I would say, yes, I definitely would like to know it, but if it's a kiddo with primary lymphedema, typically it's not that they are missing lymph nodes, it's just that they have like a dysplasia, so it's just abnormal or bundled or whatever it is, and so you can still direct your MLD like to all of the regional nodes, and you don't necessarily have to reroute or like totally skip over um, those regional nodes. And so that plays a little bit of an effect with my MLD portion um, versus like a secondary kiddo that is coming after they've had chemo, radiation, um, lymph node removal. That is nice information to know. But it's so then when you're back in the eval and you've got the kiddo in front of you, what are some basic measurements you take? What are some basic questions you're asking? Can you kind of walk me through um, those steps? Sure. So um, I like to ask, you know, do you notice fluctuations or is it growing like in proportion, in ratio as the child is growing? Because that can give you a little bit of an idea on whether or not it's more overgrowth, fatty tissue versus actual lymphedema. Um, I like to know about their skin integrity and if they ever have issues with that. Um, I want to know, again, about their age and what milestones are they doing. So for older kids that are more functional, you know, I don't have to focus on that so much. But I will always include some sort of standardized test, um, primarily because we want to see the functional change in these kids. And that's the whole point, you know, is... Of course, we want to improve skin integrity, and that's very important, but these kids are growing and developing and around their peers, and they, they look and feel very different, and so we want them to be able to reach their goals. So I do my very best to get a standardized test in there, along with girth measurements. And with girth measurements, it just kind of depends. So you have a child that's a toddler or you know younger, and they're growing. I can't really do like one inch above the axilla or below the axilla or above the elbow crease or something like that. So I have to use more landmarks. Um, so that can be challenging because it's hard to say for sure I'm measuring in the exact spot every single time because I'll, I'll say like mid forearm or largest area of forearm 
um, because as they grow, you know, that spot kind of moves a little bit. Yeah. It's probably not something I've thought of. I think I have maybe considered the growth, but you don't really think that, you know, when you see them again in six months or, I mean, I know you're going to measure more frequently than that, but the measurement you took six months ago, it's literally not in the same place. Like they have grown an inch. Right. Yeah. So that, right. Yeah, especially I don't with think the younger that's actually kids. fully occurred to me until just now. That <laughs> their landmarks are moving. Their bodies are growing. Right. It took me a couple of kids to realize, oh yeah, that's not really in the exact same spot. And so then that was just more documentation. Um, but on the older kids that are, you know, not necessarily growing as quickly or they're done growing, I will do more of like the actual two inches or, you know, I can specify from a landmark, like how many inches up. And that is helpful if, you know, they have very asymmetrical um, swelling or overgrowth to be able to target that and compare side to side. And talking about measuring, how often do you measure? Do you measure every visit? Is it once a week? What's the durate or the frequency of measurement? So right now I'm seeing kids three days a week, Tuesday, Wednesdays, and Thursdays. Um, we'd love to have more days. It's just that's a whole nother um, barrier to peace. But what I will typically always do is I will measure them on the Tuesday and Thursday. One, I want to see what happened over the weekend or, you know, since I last saw them, how much have they increased? And then it's also nice to see from Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, um, I'll measure to see if we're making an impact. And a lot of times I'll do like a before and after measurement if I have time. Okay. So I'm going to kind of do the old school soap note. And I know that's not exactly <clears throat> how we write our notes now, um, but what is some subjective information that would be important to the evaluation, either from mom, dad, caregiver, or kiddo? What's some subjective key points? Um, so I want to know, you know, are they experiencing any pain? Um, do they use that extremity if it's an extremity, or do they somewhat, you know, ignore it? Um, do you notice hand dominance or leg dominance, um, leg length discrepancy. That's something that I want to know if they noticed anything like that. Um, do they feel that, or what type of things are they limited from? Did it limit them from developing certain, you know, milestones when they were younger or now they want to dance on the cheerleading team, but their one leg's larger, larger than the other. And so just to be able to base what we are doing and make this meaningful to them. And, you know, we should be doing this as a PT across the board, but these kids are coming in with a lifelong disease that is not curable. And we have to sell them early on on why it's important to come back to us repeatedly and to be consistent with their garments and their MLB at home and wrapping. And so I just, I really try to focus on what is important to them and how can we make this relatable so that they find the importance behind it. I agree 100%. We have to definitely incorporate them into the plan because if it's just, you know, a textbook, we want to get 
you know, circumference down or volume down or whatever. It it helps them, but it doesn't address what they personally are going through, and everyone is different, so I couldn't agree with that more. Lymphedema Podcast is supported by Bryland's Feet Foundation, Juzo, and Medi USA. Learn more about each sponsor on our website, lymphedemapodcast.com, and listen to their episodes while you're there. Following up on the evaluation objective, what are some key points there? So objectively, of course, I want to get girth measurements, um, a standardized test if I can. Range of motion um, can often be limited, and so I like to measure that. Um, Lug length discrepancy, like I was saying earlier, um, because that can throw off their entire posture and and set their uh, spine in a curve and affect how they're walking. Um, And then I will, at the least, if I can't get a standardized assessment and I want to look at the basics so if it's an older kiddo you know can they get up from the ground and stand up are they walking can they climb stairs Um, you know is it comfortable for them to sit or you know do they have swelling in their glutes to where they're asymmetric with that Um, and for the littler kids I'm going to look at your the infants I'm going to look at their you know gross motor skills are they bringing hands to feet starting to roll um, do, if they have swelling on like the dorsal aspect of their palm or their hand, that can affect crawling a lot. Um, and so I just like to see how it's affecting them through that. So I want to get those measurements pretty early on. And assessment. Um, so assessment, I guess, kind of blends with that. So more of the functional side of things. And at that point, I also want to decide how how is this affecting them and is the benefit of going through this outweighing their gross motor skills and development um because there's a trade-off there you know where it's like orthotics like you you gain stability but you're going to lose their ability to do certain movements and so um it's really important to assess like what areas are the most impaired um and how can we figure out our plan to address that with the perfect amount of balance that we can find. I know that with working with Bryland's Feet Foundation and other therapists that have kind of reached out to us through that organization, we do recommend bandaging early, so early intervention with compression bandaging, um, wire compression, and if interfering with any milestones or um, you're seeing any delays, then we would just recommend mostly doing that lighter compression bandaging at night. And your experience, would you agree with this or would you say there's a better approach to that? I absolutely agree. So textbook, we're not supposed to wrap kids under 12 months of age, but I've found that it really just depends because if you get a little one in with this large extremity, you've got to try something for them. Um, So I always do manual with them. And then you can use secondary techniques like kinesio tape or something like that. But I I try um, bandaging them. And, you know, maybe if they have both legs involved or both hands or whatever it is, I'll only do one extremity at a time and then alternate that on either day to day or, 
usually it's day to day, not week to week. Um, and, and trying to make sure that once they're bandaged, they can still obtain certain positions optimally. Um, and then we do double check and check in with the families and, you know, just like you said, if it's really interfering, then we back off on it and kind of stick just with nighttime garments. Um, but if we can get in there early for daytime bandaging, we definitely try that. Great. Thanks for, you know, talking to that point because that is something that we've been recommending. And and the article that this podcast is accompanying, um, it's, it's what I recommend there too. So it's good just to kind of get that reinforcement because as I learned after completing my um, A. Coles course, textbook is there for a reason, but textbook does not apply to everyone. And so it has been very beneficial for a lot of kiddos to get that early intervention instead of being delayed until they have again changes or you know extremely large limb volume that's really kind of throwing off their development as well so um I, yeah case by case for sure and then you know just seeing how they respond to it so i th- i appreciate you kind of speaking right. to that and, and then I, final, say, I always note, get clear <laughs> sorry perfect no i agree yes <laughs> um and then finally on plan pediatrics I mean again textbook it's probably very difficult to get a kiddo in there five days a week for treatment what is um, a common frequency and duration of your treatment Um, what would your plan of the note portion look like so that is a very good question, and it has evolved for me over the last few years as we've developed the program here at Texas Children's. Um, and again, I didn't really have any adult experience before working with kids, and so I really latched onto the textbook for, you know, what is that protocol? Um, but what you come to find out is that with kids, with scheduling is a very big challenge. Um, you know, when you're working with adults, of course, they work too, but you're, you're scheduling one person or interfering with one person's schedule. With kids, I'm interfering with their school and their parents' work. And so to ask them to come four or five days a week, not to mention we have paid parking, um, is just a lot, um, a lot to ask of them. And, and so we've played around with our frequency and duration um, and what I've been doing over the last couple of years is three days a week. That seems to be what most people could come to the most often. Um, I moved, I was originally doing my treatment sessions in the afternoon at one, but I moved them to 7 a.m. So at least they can get started early and then go to school, but they're not necessarily getting pulled out at lunch and then they can't go back. Um, It's not perfect for everyone, but that just seems to be the best way that I can get them in more consistently. And on average, I'm seeing them for about four weeks to six weeks, and then I'll do like a one-month follow-up if I need to um, to make sure that all of their compression and everything is in line. Um, And then I try to get them back in at least one time a year for intensive. Awesome. And do they come back to you for maintenance for compression? I know you just mentioned that, 
but do they come back every three months? Because I know if they're younger, they're growing out of custom garments. Um, what does that garment situation look like? So that somewhat depends as well, which is not the best answer. But like I said, I'm very fortunate in that I work in a large hospital system where we have a big vascular anomalies clinic. And those kids are typically going through clinic every three to six months anyways to have their medications or whatever the physicians are following them for. And so a lot of times it's easier for them to skip the middleman, me, if they're only needing like a new script for a garment. And I will just have them ask the physician or, you know, a lot of times they will message me because we grow close quickly here in the room for two hours at a time, three days a week, you know, they might reach out to me and then I'll just send their referring physician a request or a script um, to get that signed. But on average, for the most part, I'm not seeing these kids for their intensive phases um, more than once a year. And I've tried to do what we call like a modified series where they come one time a week, but it's just not beneficial, <laughs> you know? I mean, unless the parents are being really, really compliant with that, but then if they're being really, really compliant, my one day a week probably isn't necessary. So, um, so yeah, it's, it's been a learning process for me as well. And I don't think that there's a perfect answer, but we're trying to figure that out for sure. Good. I, I get you. It's, it's all trial and error and that's, that's the same in peds and adult and, geriatric lymphedema for that right. matter, I'm sure. Um, it's all, um, I tell people, like, lymphedema treatment is fluid. I mean, like, literally lymphatic fluid, but also just, like, up and down as well. Exactly. And, like, how things work. Yes. I explain it as all the stars have to align because we will have a, a pretty decent-sized wait list, but it's just really hard for these parents to be able to commit to what, you know, I have to, at least before I evaluate them, I try to at least get them to say tentatively, we are agreeing to coming three times a week for two hours a day, from 7 to 9 a.m. for four, four to six weeks. And that's a big commitment, um, whether it's the school year or summertime. And so it's just a lot. And I feel like all the stars have to align to get these kids in. Yeah, I would 100% agree. You have many challenges and it's not easy. So I commend you for just doing your best work and trying your hardest to kind of help as many of those kids as you can. And you're right. Thankfully, you guys are in a big hospital system where they do have more resources um, available to help with that treatment plan as far as imaging and frequency and follow-ups. So you guys are doing a great job there at Texas Children's. Thank you. We are trying. Um, just before we go, do you have any follow-up um, key points you would like to make or any encouragement you would like to leave for the many CLTs who will be, you know, referring to this and listening, trying to grasp the concept and kind of get the modifications down for evaluating and treating kiddos? Um. I would say that maybe the only thing we didn't touch too much on is um, getting these kids their custom garments. 
Um, at least for us, we have a big population of kiddos that are insured by Medicaid, and Medicaid does not like to pay for custom garments, um, and most kids need a custom garment. And so that's been a really big challenge, not only getting them fit in a good size garment that they're not growing out of, but getting Medicaid or whatever insurance company to cover them multiple times a year or cover them one time for that matter. And so it's been an interesting process to try to see how I can go about finding like charity organizations or some of the big manufacturers will offer like donated garments. Um, but it, yeah, that's, that's been one of my other biggest challenges outside of scheduling is, you know, we go through all of this intensive treatment only to find out that we can't get them a garment and they're very expensive. And so that's been a challenge and just kind of paying a little closer attention to what their insurance company is early on so that you can start that process early as well, whether you are going to submit to insurance or if you need to start looking for a charity or one of the larger companies that is going to be able to donate a garment. Awesome. So I would like to go ahead and plug there for Briley yeah. Sweet Foundation. I know um, that even though they are doing really great work, um, I say they, it's Brittany, <laughs> Brylin's mom. <laughs> Brittany is um, carrying this whole nonprofit on her back, um, as well as being a mom of four. And Arizona at this time is still um, doing virtual learning. So she is momming, nonprofiting, and just being all around a rock star. So I can't, like, brag enough on Brittany. But there was the Foundation. They have the resources to be able to help provide children with those compression garments. Also, they can help you pay for some treatment. They can get you in touch with anyone um, as far as getting garments. Various types of vendors are working with Brittany at Bryland's Feet Foundation. Um, Medi, Jokes, Lintha Press, Juzo. She really has contract, not contracts, that's not the right word, but she has a good working relationship with all of them. So you guys there at Texas Children, if you ever need anyone, you can reach out to Brittany um, or myself. And then anyone listening to this, if you're looking for information, brylandsfeetfoundation.org, or you can email myself and I can direct you to Brittany. My email will be at the end of this episode. But those, that's a good free resource. And then, like you said, a lot of those big companies, they do offer um, those resources. And the vendors, the reps, they have like a sample budget. And I don't know if this is like a secret to anyone. I hope I'm not blowing their cover. But they have a sample budget. And if you need help and you're in a bind, you can call and they're like, hey, this would be a really good deal for you. Let's try to get your kiddo a sample. And then, boom, you at least have one free garment um, to get you started. It, it's not the final. Obviously, they need way more than that, but at least that's a good start. And then you can reach out to Brylin's Feet or, um, you know, start a lemonade stand or something to save up. All right, Amber, thank you so much for your information today. I know that your insight is going to be extremely helpful to all of the CLTs who are going to listen to this. And I myself will be putting this thing on replay <laughs> in the near future, I'm sure. No, thank you so much, and 
trust me, like I am open to any other um, input as well. Like I said, we're evolving and trying to figure out what is the best for these kids. And so, you know, I think we just need to all come together, all of us working with kids, especially, and just see what's working. What, what, are, what are these patterns that seem to be more consistent? So it's exciting. I hope this interview was helpful to anyone seeking information on the necessary modifications that are needed for a pediatric lymphedema evaluation. When combined with the guidelines from the article on Lymphedema Blog, this should set a firm foundation for where to start. A few key points I want to leave you with include this. Early intervention is critical to the long-term success of kids with lymphedema. It is unnecessary to wait until limb volume increases or fibrosis occurs. I would even say negligent. The sooner parents learn to apply short stretch compression bandaging at home and begin phase one, the better. Maintenance phase for kids is not the final phase. Due to their age as well as their rapidly changing bodies, children will go between the reduction phase and the maintenance phase many times. And finally, going without garments should never be an option. If a child you are treating is in need of financial assistance for compression garments or needs help with insurance, please reach out to Bryland's Feet Foundation. Mother Teresa says, loneliness and the feeling of being unwanted is the most terrible poverty. This podcast is here for you to find friendship and a community for your journey with lymphedema. I hope you enjoyed learning more about pediatric lymphedema treatment modifications. Email me with your story if you would like to share, lymphedemapodcast at gmail.com, or visit the website lymphedemapodcast.com to submit a topic for another episode.